Hello, everyone, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson. Today, I'll be speaking with Corey Rimini, English teacher at the Frederick Gunn School in Washington, Connecticut. Corey, welcome to Member Voices. Thank you so much, Scott. To set the stage, can you let us know how long you've been teaching and what ages or grades you teach? Sure. So I am now approaching the end of my fifth year teaching. My first year, I I only taught freshmen, so ninth grade. I now teach ninth and 11th grade. So ninth grade is English one and 11th grade. I teach AP English language and composition, which is primarily a nonfiction class of juniors and seniors now. And as a teacher, what are you seeing right now in the classroom in regards to student health and well-being? Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of the focus of research and articles has been on the academic impact of students through the pandemic. And truthfully, this year in particular, I have been blown away by my freshmen especially and their excitement and their eagerness um, to be in a classroom and to learn alongside their peers. But from a, a wellness aspect, you know, I firmly believe that social emotional learning is a, a key component of wellness. And I am seeing with freshmen especially, there's there's certain gaps for them. You know, being in a classroom, for instance, for 40 minutes for the first two weeks of school, that was a, a challenge to to be able to sit for 40 minutes and listen to peers, get all the wiggles out and the bathroom visits out. So from my perspective as a teacher, certainly can't say this is universal, but from my own students, I've seen that they are very motivated and really excited to be back in the classroom, but definitely are seeing, I would say, more challenges adjusting to the, the social aspect of being in a classroom and part of that community. And what kind of steps have you or your your colleagues or your school taken to address some of these challenges and, and have they worked? You know, what I love about teaching freshmen is they're all coming from different places. So there's just a pretty vast range of experiences, learning, and, and when we get that all in a room together, it's it's pretty phenomenal. But that also means it's pretty challenging because a big part of their freshman year for students is just figuring out school culture and what's okay and what's not okay. And for instance, at the Frederick Gunn School, we have advisor lunch once a week. So if you've been here, then you know that you walk in, you keep your blazer on, you stand behind your chair, you wait until the blessing, and then you're allowed to sit down. But if you haven't been here, that is a very strange Thing to witness and be a part of. So, you know, I think what Gunn does really well is, is give these students a lot of grace within those first few months, particularly our new students and especially our freshmen. So as most schools do, we have these student progress meetings, both at the midterm and the end of term. And then we sort of have meetings along the way for any students of concern. And by students of concern, that's that's a pretty broad range of 
you know, is so-and-so really homesick or is so-and-so really struggling with reading comprehension? So it's a pretty broad range, but we keep very close eyes on our new students especially. And that's, that's what I love about boarding school, but, you know, this school in particular is it's very hard to slip through the cracks because we're only a school of about 300. You know, every single student that walks by, I've, I've heard their name in a student progress meeting. I've heard how they're doing. I know maybe a little bit about their family. They're struggling in the dorm. There's a good chance I either will teach them or coach them or have them in the dorm. So I think one of the things that we do to address these social concerns is simply just kind of embrace them fully in in our boarding school community, which means really paying close attention to what they need and learning who they are as individuals. Any other unique opportunities or challenges, you know, in this area of, of student health and well-being that you feel comes with being in a boarding school? Each faculty member has typically between four and eight advisees, and they're sort of our direct responsibility in terms of academic advising. But for me, I've seen the the bigger focus truly has been on the social emotional aspect. And something that I really appreciate here is we've been working on this, I don't know if it's a program, but sort of a, a concept, a way of thinking, it's called One Trusted Adult. And so the idea and and forgive me, I don't recall the name of the woman. I think her name was Brooke. She has this thought that every student should be able to name one trusted adult by the end of their time in high school. And her research found that there was a really startlingly sad amount of students who couldn't do that. This framework has helped me a lot in my interactions with students. You know, I know I'm not going to be the trusted adult for all 50 of my students, but if if I can build that kind of relationship with one or two or three or four, it really does have an impact that's that's bigger than a school year. So I think that's something that could be useful for others to think about. Like if we if we look if we're looking at our students and thinking you know, these students might not have in their lives someone that they feel, an adult that they feel that they can trust. And if our relationships are working towards building that trust and maybe being that adult for them, I think we would all be better for it. That makes a lot of sense. And actually that I want to get back to student health and well-being, but this actually brings up a question for me about your journey did you always feel called to this kind of work? It sounds like you're pretty passionate about it. Was it always the plan to to be a teacher or, or to be a teacher in a boarding school? Certainly not. Um, I, I think my path is a little bit unusual, maybe not unusual, but but I, I wish I could say that like from the age of five, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I did know that I always loved learning. I really like being in a learning environment. Um, But truthfully, so I attended the Frederick Gunn School as a student. And then I went on to Connecticut College, where I studied English, math and gender studies, which is wonderful that I could study all those things, because those were all the things that I was interested in. 
But what that meant as I was approaching the winter and spring of my senior year is I still had no idea what it is I wanted to do. (laughs) So my calculus teacher from high school sent me a message, I think in maybe February of my senior year of college. And I'm fairly certain she was joking, half joking. And she said, hey, are you ready to come back and teach math yet? I was pretty anxious about being able to pay my loans. And I was really feeling disconnected to every job interview I went on. And I responded to Alyssa and I said, yeah, I actually think I am. And so from there, I, you know, did the formal application and I ended up applying to both the math and English position. And ultimately, I'm now an English teacher. The first two years were very much figuring out what am I doing? Am I any good at this? What is my my purpose here as an educator? And those are questions I still ask myself on occasion. The difference is now I feel very strongly that teaching is what I want to do. Teaching is is what I want to do and what I think gives me purpose to wake up in the morning and mm. I look forward to it. And I think there's very few 26-year-olds who can say they look forward to waking up every morning and putting on work clothes and going to work and having, you know, sometimes a 14-hour day ahead of them. Like I, I truly look forward to that. And certainly there are challenging aspects of working at a boarding school in particular, but I do think there's a, a payoff. You know, there's it's a give and a take. Yeah. Can you talk more about some of the lessons that you've learned or the advice that you were given along the way in this journey? Sure. So I think the beauty of an independent school is that I, as an educator, would come here and start my career in education without actually having studied education. And I guess when I say that out loud, that's pretty startling and could be really scary for both uh, students and faculty. But what I find is that because the structure of an independent school allows administrators to hire people who are just 100% passionate about their subject and, and love what they do, and maybe they aren't skilled in learning the pedagogy and, and different teaching tactics, but but that's something that I learned on my feet, which was really challenging and at times felt unbearable. And, and I, like I said, I constantly doubted myself, but I could constantly go back to, well, I really, I love English. I feel so passionate about helping other people see value in studying English. And, and that was what kind of grounded me. And, you know, like I said, along the way, I had a lot of both formal and informal support. So Mm -hmm. my department chair, Richard Martin, was incredible, and he taught a few sections of English One. So the two of us worked very closely my first year. And what I really appreciated about him is he, he didn't just hand me a syllabus and hand me notes and say, this is what we're doing. He gave me a lot of freedom to create my own lessons, which at the time was horrifying and 
terrifying, but um, <laughs> in hindsight, I, I needed that kind of exercise and building confidence and saying like, yes, I can do this. I can plan a 40 minute class. And again, even saying this out loud, it might seem kind of silly, but when you're a first year teacher, the thought of having 14, 14 year olds in front of you for 70 minutes is really scary. Like that, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And it was through observing my colleagues and through talking with my colleagues and kind of troubleshooting things that I was able to be less scared of the prospect of, of teaching because it, it really, for me, it was a very scary thing. And truthfully, for my first year, probably two years, I thought of it as a performance. You know, I'd sit in our department office and I'd say, okay, all right, I have seven minutes. Class starts in seven minutes. Okay, I need to set my emotions aside. I need to review my notes. I need to keep myself on track. I need to put a smile on my face and pretend like everything is super great and wonderful. And that's pretty exhausting to do that all day, every day. And mm. along the way, you know, colleagues said to me, like, this isn't sustainable. Like, you have to be, you have to be a real human. And there's nothing wrong with your students seeing you as a real human. And, you know, there's strength in vulnerability. And through the pandemic, it did give, I don't want to say the opportunity, a, a, there was a lot of hardship through the pandemic. I lost mm-hmm. my grandfather to COVID. Sorry. And, you know, I remember the, the next day going on Zoom and trying to say, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And I, I don't even remember what we were talking about in AP Lang, but I kind of just, my eyes glazed over and I couldn't, I couldn't respond to my students. I don't think I even heard what they were saying. And one of them said, Ms. Rimini, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm I'm not okay. I'm so sorry. I'm not okay. And, you know, we, we closed up class and I said, well, we're going to try this again tomorrow. We'll start with this discussion tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the following day I came in and they had all made cards that said little signs that they were holding up on Zoom that said, we love you. You're the best. You know, it helps me understand that students looking at the front of the room and seeing a teacher who appears to be perfect and have everything figured out, that's actually not a great role model because that gives them the idea that adulthood is about perfection and is about polished, you know, humanity and and showing them that actually I am a real human with emotions and who has my own, you know, issues. Not you have there's certainly a fine balance. Like I'm not going to go into a classroom and tell them all about the horrible things happening in my life, but I think it is good as my colleagues told me, it's good for them to see my humanity. And I would say the other sort of piece of advice that I got was to just keep going, to just, you know, Mm -hmm. make my way through those first two years and that it was going to get better, that it might not feel like it was going to get better in the moment, but that teaching was going to get better. It was going to feel easier. It was going to feel more purposeful. And that's something that I try to share with new faculty as well, because it is really something I needed to hear that, that we weren't all just like suffering, you know, and now 
as I'm talking, it, it sounds like this is such a horrible occupation. And I do love teaching, but I, I think we need to talk more about how hard those first few years as a new teacher are. Because when we don't talk about that, then there's this perception of, oh, no, all teachers have it figured out. They hit the ground running. They knew they were teachers from the moment they stepped into a classroom. And that's simply not the case. It's, it's a really hard process to learn whether teaching is the right path for you. And we see such a big turnover of new faculty in particular that I think we have to really normalize the fact that it is hard and you're gonna doubt yourself and it does get better. And maybe it isn't the right profession for you and that's okay, but you know, those first two years especially are not easy in any way. Yeah, well, well first of all, thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about the the faculty. So we, we talked about your students and and what you're noticing in the classroom as far as their health and well-being. How about you and, and your colleagues now? What are you seeing and experiencing right now in terms of health and well-being? I, I have to sort of separate what I'm feeling, and I don't want to project what I'm feeling and experiencing onto, you know, all faculty. but. Mm-hmm. From a numbers perspective, we are seeing so much more turnover in the past few years than we have before. And even, you know, I think I was looking at the NAIS Career Center numbers and just the number of job postings alone is a bit shocking when you look at it. Mm-hmm. And of course, in independent schools, there's going to be turnover, but it's really hard to see your colleagues leave after one or two or three, and then especially after 10 or 11 or 12 years, because we're not just each other's colleagues, we're each other's neighbors, we're the person that, you know, covers your class when you have a miscarriage. Like this is just not, it's not a normal job, which is so wonderful. That's what I love about teaching at a boarding school, but we are so deeply intertwined in each other's lives that when someone leaves, it's a hole in the community. And there is sort of a grieving process that you go through. And the kids especially, certainly retention has an impact on our students. But like I said, I don't think we talk enough about the impact on the adults in the community. And also, I I really love that at at an independent school, we can focus so much on the social emotional health of our students. And you know, we have all these initiatives that we're doing with advising and with programming to make sure that we're helping students develop these competencies of self-awareness and whatnot. But it's almost as if we assume as soon as someone, I don't know, graduates college or whatever it is, they, they have it figured out. They suddenly have gotten their degree in social emotional learning. And it's it's simply not true. So we give our students this grace and this recognition that they are still figuring it out in a lot of ways. But I think we need to do the same for faculty, for adults and recognize, particularly coming out of the pandemic or really still in the pandemic, that all of us has something going on in our lives that somebody may know nothing about. And we can't just pack that away when we step into a classroom And the triple threat model, which I think is more of a quadruple threat model at this point, 
-hmm. It's wonderful in a lot of ways, but it's also, it's a lot. It is a lot of work and it's a lot of stress. And so from my perspective, I'm seeing my colleagues more and more burnt out. And, you know, before the pandemic, we would, you know, have lots of social gatherings and go out and whatnot. And it, it felt more like there was more social things happening. And then I think we all kind of fell into some habits during the pandemic of staying home, which is what we needed to do. But mm-hmm. from my perspective, this feels like we all are fighting our own battles within and haven't really been able to to talk with one another, you know, because things are so busy we can't really afford to like, oh, let's let's sit down and see how each other are doing. It's like, oh, well, so-and-so has dorm duty and so-and-so has a meeting tonight. And then you're at key team until 6.30 and I have, you know, a prefect meeting. And it's, it's like everyone's just running in, in six different directions. So it is hard to find time to be just a community of adults at a boarding school. Yeah, from your perspective, any thoughts on how we can help support adult social and emotional learning or well-being? Yeah, this is something I've thought a lot about. And I think part of the reason I think so much about it is because I myself have really struggled with anxiety and and with feeling like I'm not doing enough or you know, having trouble finding purpose. So then I think about, well, what what has helped me in my own sort of process of well-being? For one, and it, again, it seems like something little, but, you know, in college, I went to Connecticut College and there was free counseling for all four years. So you could go and speak with a counselor every week if you wanted to and not be charged anything. And then I graduate college and all of a sudden, I have to find a therapist. I have to be able to pay for a therapist. So even Mm -hmm. something as small as like finding a primary care physician, finding a therapist in the area can be a pretty big barrier for the well-being of faculty, particularly faculty who are new to the area. So yeah, I would say sharing resources is really important. I also think really talking to each other is important. Like I said, we, we're all so busy all the time. Sometimes we have 20 minutes for lunch, but even if in those 20 minutes we put our phones away and we don't look at our email and we have a human-to-human conversation about something that isn't our students, that isn't work, I think that's really important. I think the more that we can talk to each other and share our own experiences and our own hardships as a teacher, I think that is important to sort of normalize that teaching is really hard. And we know that. I think culturally, we know that. We know teaching is notoriously underpaid and overworked. But it's kind of, in my opinion, become like a meme, like, oh, haha, teachers, they're so overworked and underpaid. But no, like, this Mm. is an issue. (laughs) You know, this is a Mm -hmm. serious issue. And certainly an aspect of well-being is feeling like you have purpose, feeling like you are valued. And so from a compensation standpoint, at boarding schools, that can be really hard to 
need to negotiate your contract. And, and first of all, that's a skill that I was never taught. <laughs> I don't know that anyone has ever taught the skill of contract negotiation, but it's a pretty critical skill. But compensation is certainly tied to well-being from a basic standpoint. Like I need to be able to afford to pay my student loans and see a therapist and save for my future and feel like I have something to work towards. But then also just from a a worth aspect, you know, compensation is one way to show someone that you value their work, but there are certainly other ways as well. So I think little things that we can do would be when, when someone does something that's worthy of recognizing, recognize it. When someone is clearly having a bad day, ask them that they're, if they're okay, if you can help, you know, sit in on a class or cover a class from them, for them rather. And for new faculty in particular, I think we really need to, in the same way that we pay very close attention to our ninth graders and our new students as they're acclimating to this new community, I think we need to pay really close attention to our new faculty because a lot of those same, you know, struggles that new students go through in feeling like, am I a part of this? Is this is this where I belong? Do I fit in? Those are feelings that new faculty experience too. So if we paid the same, you know, amount of attention and the same we provided the same resources to our new faculty as we do to our new students, I think we would find that they feel more supported and they feel more part of the community and perhaps less likely to leave. Well, one area that we haven't really touched on that's related to student health and well-being is diversity and, and equity and inclusion. Uh, it, based on your experience, how do you see that that intersection of that work as it pertains to student health and well-being? You know, when I look around, I recognize that I work at a school that is predominantly white, and that's not just the student body, that's that's faculty as well. So from a wellness, social, emotional learning standpoint, for our students of color to look at our faculty and maybe only see one or two people who look like them that's an issue. They're not seeing themselves in the faculty population in the same way that as faculty members, I think we really need to show up as humans and and lean into the vulnerability and, and not pretend like we're perfect because we are the ones standing at the front of the room. We also need to recognize that as faculty, we are the ones standing at the front of the room, which means there's 14 pairs of eyes on us, 14 pairs of eyes that are thinking, okay, this is, you know, this is someone, maybe my trusted adult. And so when we, in a faculty, only have a few faculty of color, we have to think about the well-being of our students of color and what it means for them to look around and not see many people who look like them. You know, I very much see social-emotional learning tied to well-being. And social-emotional learning is a process in the same way that any learning is a process, but it's a process that, in my opinion, is necessary to succeed in relationship-based environments. And boarding school is such an environment based in relationships, but certainly race and gender and sexual identity, all of these aspects of identity 
have weight in relationships and, and impact someone's experience at a boarding school in particular. So when we don't have representation of people of color within our faculty or even within our student body more widely, then I think it can be really challenging for those members of the community to, to feel tied to the community, to build those relationships. You know, certainly there's, there's other aspects of equity tied to health and well-being and someone's ability, for instance, to, you know, pay for a therapist and go to a primary care doctor once a year at minimum and go to a dentist and, and do all of these things that are considered preventative rather than reactive medicine. But I do think in some ways at a boarding school, because of sort of the socioeconomic requirements of attending an, an institution like a boarding school, I think we forget about some of those barriers for our students, but, but certainly our students come from diverse backgrounds where, you know, access to a therapist might not be possible for them, but it also might not be something that their family is okay with, that their family allows them to do. So boarding school offers a unique opportunity for students to learn who they are away from their families. And sometimes that that's really important from a health and wellness standpoint, because for the first time in their lives, they can say to a trusted adult, I think I need to see a therapist. And I don't know how to address that with my family. Can you help me talk to my family about seeing a therapist? Has social and political polarization affected uh, your work at all? I'm curious whether or not, if at all, that comes up and what it might look like in the classroom or in your work. As an English teacher, the environment we are currently in, in terms of politics, offers a really unique opportunity for me as a teacher to help my students learn how to navigate what they're reading and what they're listening to and what they're watching. So certainly as a teacher, my job is not to tell them what to think. It's to help them learn how to think and learn how to develop their own beliefs, which is more important now than I think ever before. And a big part of understanding what you believe is being able to look at the media and being able to look, you know, at your Twitter feed and the news and the newspaper and the Thanksgiving table conversations and being able to understand what's happening, but also separate, you know, start to think about like what is actually being said and how do you process what is being said? How do you, how do you know who to trust? How do you know what to believe. So my AP Lang class, part of what I really love about this class is we look at a lot of, you know, shorter opinion pieces from the New York Times or the New Yorker, and students can bring in anything to class, something they read last night, and we can do a rhetorical analysis on that piece. And what this class is all about is, you know, understanding a speaker's purpose and how they achieve that purpose, which is a really important skill to have as, you know, a citizen in a democracy. So I think a lot of, a lot of the conversations that I used to be scared of about politics, when we put them through the lens of 
rhetoric and through the lens of an English class, they're a lot more approachable. Mm -hmm. And my goal is for students to, you know, be able to leave my English class. And certainly I want them to be better writers and thinkers and readers, but I also want them to have the confidence to be able to read a really challenging piece in the New York Times or to be able to navigate a really hard conversation with someone who has different beliefs than them because that's important right like I, I certainly don't want my students to say oh we have different opinions so I'm going to walk away and I'm not going to engage with you as citizens in a democracy they need to have these conversations but it's not an intuitive skill and so you know to have an argument from the definition of what an argument truly means to have this persuasive discourse with someone is something that as teachers, I feel is our responsibility to teach our students more, more so than it's our responsibility to teach them, you know, the difference between an independent and a dependent clause. Well, we've covered a a lot of ground and discussed a lot of, you know, heavier topics and and challenges. So I I do want to close with some more uh, positive elements. Where do you turn to for inspiration when you're uh, sorting through all of this? Yeah, that's, that's a question I think about a lot. I would say my, my biggest source of inspiration is the, the people in my life. I mean, this, right, this is at the core of, of social emotional learning is like, what, what is your purpose in waking up? What is your purpose in getting out of bed and brushing your teeth and brushing your hair and putting on deodorant and going to work? Like, do you feel you have a purpose? And my students, my students give me a purpose. And of course, there's the students who are just amazing from the moment they walk onto campus. And my mind is blown by, you know, how critically they're thinking and, and the questions they're asking. And those students are inspirational in their own way. But the students who inspire me the most are the ones who really struggle in some way and they grow in their time here. Those are the students who I think this is, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is why I work six days a week. This is why I'm waking up on a Saturday morning to go teach a class when, you know, my 26 year old friends are having brunch in New York City. Like there's a reason that I've chosen to dedicate my life to this occupation. And that reason in large part is those students who don't have it figured out from the moment they step foot onto campus and who really are very much open to change. Those are the students who who make me feel like my job as an educator is worth worth doing. You know, I also certainly my mom is a huge inspiration. She's a dean of students at the Marblewood School, but pretty remarkably, she she does not have her college degree, which makes me think a lot about, oh, that makes me think a lot about a lot of things. So I would say in short, you know, when I'm feeling hopeless, which is a really horrible feeling, but it's also a feeling that I think all of us are going to experience at some point in our lives. And as teachers, hopelessness, that's when you start to question what you're doing and who you are and if this is right. So in those moments, I think about, you know, the student who is so challenging and so hard and 
gave me such a, you know, hard time their freshman year. And then by their senior year, they came up to me at graduation and said, Ms. Rumi, I understand why you were so hard on me. I understand. And thank you. Like those are the moments that, that gives me hope. And I also just look at, you know, my colleagues around me because they are the ones ultimately who, whether they knew it or not, they convinced me to keep doing what I'm doing to get through that hump of the first two years where you're constantly questioning yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I, uh, I love that answer and I really appreciate your insight and, and honesty and, and the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you giving me this time and space. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. You can find some related NAIS resources from this episode by visiting nais.org slash membervoices. You can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes or subscribe to automatically receive a new podcast episode in your feed each month. Please be sure to listen and then rate and review each new episode and go back and listen to past episodes you may have missed. Also, don't forget, we always want to hear your stories, questions, and comments. So please send them to us by emailing membership at nais.org.